Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Good morning. That's really quite an introduction, Tom. <clears throat> Trust me, I'll think of something. This, I'll have some snappy rejoinder at some point in time. I need a chair. Excuse me. Thank you. See, I'm like a little old lady. I, I carry a bunch of stuff with me when I come. I hope I didn't offend any little old ladies in the place. <clears throat> Can't tell you how blessed I am to be here with you guys. This is my... I've always loved being here. I mean, I've had the opportunity to come here and, and, and speak with y'all and do some teaching and... From since way back one, the founders of this church are dear friends of, of ours, and I, I'm with Tom. He's become a very dear friend. I trust his judgment, mostly. Um, he's, uh, I, I have no doubt that you have the ugliest sweater in this church, and you'll probably win. So, I mean, but, you know, humor the man and, and, and do that for him. Anyway, let me try this again. Good morning. Tennessee Williams, um, great American author, wrote a short story titled Something by Tolstoy. And it tells the story of Jacob Brodsky, a shy Russian Jew who runs his father's bookstore. Jacob's dream seemed complete when he married his childhood sweetheart, Lila, a beautiful, exuberant French girl. The life of a bookstore proprietor suited Jacob just fine, but not so much his adventurous young bride. An agent for a vaudeville touring company. This goes to show you how old this is. A vaudeville touring company heard Lila sing and talked her into touring Europe with their show. In the process of explaining to Jacob that she just had to seize this opportunity to leave, she also left a chasm-sized hole in this man's heart. But before she left, he gave her a key to the bookshop and said, you had better keep this because you're going to want it someday. Your love is not so much less than mine that you can get away from it. You will come back sometime, and I will be waiting. Well, Lila went on the road, and Jacob went back to the back of his bookshop, and to deaden the pain, he turned to his books as someone else might turn to drugs or alcohol. Weeks turned into years, and when 15 of them had passed, the bell above the bookshop's front door signaled the arrival of a customer. And of course, we all know, not even maybe even hearing this story before, it was Lila. The bookshop's owner rose to greet her. But to her astonishment, her abandoned husband didn't recognize her and simply spoke to her like he would any other customer. Do you want a book? He said. Stunned and trying to maintain her composure, she raised a gloved hand to her throat and stammered, no, no, that is... I, I wanted a book, but I've, uh, I've forgotten the name of it. Regaining some poise, she continued, Let me tell you the story. Perhaps you've read it and you can give me the name of it. Then she told him of a boy and a girl who had become constant companions since childhood, and as teenagers they fell in love, and they eventually married and lived over a bookshop. She told him their whole story, the vaudeville company's offer, the husband's broken-hearted gift of a key, the return of the wife, 
who was never able to part with that key. How, after 15 years, she had finally come to her senses and returned home to him. And with a desperate plea, she said, You remember it. You must remember it. The story of Lila and Jacob. And with a vacant, faraway look, he merely said, There's something familiar about the story. I think I've read it somewhere. It seems to me that it's something by Tolstoy. Only the heartbreaking, metallic echo of a key dropping on a hard floor interrupted her horrified silence. Lila, having let go of the key as well as her hope, fled the bookshop in tears. And Jacob returned to his books. Merry Christmas! What a heartbreaking story, huh? Gosh, we are so used to have, and have come to expect stories like this to have a happy ending. You know, the kind where the boy finally remembers the girl, forgives her for walking it out on him so long, long ago, and coming together and they live happily ever after. But here's a fact that is difficult as, for us to come to terms with, but every now and again, you know, life just does it to us. Life is full of heartbreak. It's full of unrequited love, full of stories of lost hope. There's a story of another Jewish couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth who lived a couple thousand years ago. They loved each other very, very much and wanted nothing more than any other devout Jews wanted back in the day. They wanted to live a life devoted, fully devoted to God, serving him in all ways possible, and then hopefully raising their many children to do the same. Trouble is, as time went on, the children never came. And you know, you could look in the Old Testament and you could even see in the New Testament, not necessarily the thing about children, but about what it is to, 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 to lose hope, what it is to come to terms with the fact that, you know what, life didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to. Life didn't turn out the way that, I, frankly, I thought it should. But back in the day, um, there were very distinctive roles that men and women had within society. Men pretty much did everything and had everything, and had all the power, and women pretty much had children, preferably male children. And if a woman couldn't do that, there was an incredible amount of shame and guilt, and there was nothing that anybody could do. But that's not to say that, well, they just accepted it. Typically what happened was is they would do everything they possibly could, because I'm sure that I mean, and, and you could see it in, in the story is that we'll read in just a few minutes that these were people that were not just devoted to God, but they were devoted to each other. So these guys, no doubt, did everything they possibly could, everything they humanly could to, so that Elizabeth could have children, so that Elizabeth could not have to carry the shame of not having children. And over time, they just came to the conclusion that there was just nothing that they could do, that, that they did everything they possibly could. And that they had come to the conclusion that, you know what, this is just our lot in life. This is just the way things are. That's just how it goes. Such is life in our broken world. 
It's full of disappointment, brokenness, and lost hope. Truth of the matter is, in spite of how messed up things were, something you need to hear is they were never meant to be that way. You see, God didn't design the world for those kinds of things. Have you ever thought about that? You know, what's going on around us isn't the way it was meant to be. You know, in Asheville, right now, um, there's really two parts of western North Carolina. Um, There's that which is an ash heap because of the, the wildfires that have been going on there. And there are other parts of it that are just waiting to burn. It's a tinderbox. In Costa Rica this week, I don't know if you read this or not, there was, a, there was a hurricane. You know when the last time there was a hurricane in Costa Rica? No one knows because it's never happened on record. There was just an earthquake not too long ago. Once again, in Fukushima, Japan, which is where that t- the terrible earthquake that happened a few years ago and the tsunami that came along with it that killed not just thousands of people, but that laid waste to... Uh, to a land. I mean, there was a, there was a, there was a meltdown of a nuclear facility there. Now, in Japan, because there is no oil and because there is no natural energy, the overwhelming majority of the energy that they generate, and we all know that, that it's, an industrial, it's an industrial power and a great economy, the overwhelming am- amount of power, or the overwhelming source of power there is, is nuclear energy. Every time you read of a tragedy... Every time you read of an earthquake, every time you read of a tornado, when I lived in, when Carol and I lived in the upper Midwest, we saw what tornadoes can do. I know there's some folks in this congregation that grew up in the prairie. You're familiar with them. You know what it's like. It's just, I mean, they have storm cellars, for heaven's sakes. Back, God did not create his world to have those kinds of things. You know, we talk about the fact, often, you know, in church, we talk about the things that Jesus did, and, and it's true, and it's, and, it's, it's, and it's awesome. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today, obviously. But the fact of the matter is that even though many of us have come to know Jesus in a personal way, many of us have devoted our lives to him, we're growing and, and seek to become more and more like him on a daily basis, there are certain things in this broken, messed up world that we have come to expect. Things like hurricanes and earthquakes and forest fires and tornadoes, and things like that. But friends, you've got to understand something. That's not the way God designed the world to be. There's an author, I can't think of his name right now, that, you know, Jesus came, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that which he has come to establish his kingdom, the kingdom of God here on earth. And what has happened is, is that I'm of the firm belief that we live in the kingdom right now. In fact, what this guy calls it, I love how he says this, he calls it the already not yet kingdom. It's already here because Jesus came to establish it. But you know what? Because we still have earthquakes, because we still have broken lives, because we still have stuff that's messed up, it's not quite here. The already not yet kingdom. There's great hope there. But then when you turn around, you still see a certain amount of hopelessness. You still see earthquakes and wildfires and broken hearts and men leaving women and women leaving men. Unfortunately, that's what we've come to expect. Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong probably will. You know what? We learn to work around it and even live with it. You know? I mean, that's life, right? 
And God, sure, he's out there. And sure, he's, he's concerned with the world, but he's way too busy to concern himself with what's going on with me. It would be selfish, even delusional, to think that he's going to intervene in my life. I mean, sure, he loves me, but come on. The thing is this. Human beings have thought like this from the time of the fall, even up to now. And you know what? It was no different back in the day of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth either. Zechariah was a man of God. He was committed to living out his faith in the only way that he knew. But you know what? I can't help but feel that there was a little part of him, just maybe a little teeny part that he never let anybody see, maybe Elizabeth, but never let anybody else see, that had just lost hope. Today, today, as Tom had mentioned, we're going to kick off the season of Advent with a message series titled, We Believe. Advent is defined as the arrival of someone or something notable. Perhaps both. I happen to think it's both. What we're going to talk about over the next four Sundays leading up to Christmas is the arrival of a person, namely Jesus of Nazareth, but also some of the things that Jesus brought with him. Things like hope and joy and peace and love. Things that were in desperately short supply back in the day. And frankly, still are. The title of today's message is Hope. The Lord is with you. And what we'll soon see is that even in the midst of a dark and broken and hopeless world, when God arrives, hope is renewed. Let's get started. When you walked in the door, you were handed a teaching outline, I'm sure. And on the top of that, There's a passage from Luke chapter 1. It's a story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it's going to serve as our text for today. We're going to look at verses 5 through 25. I know, it's a long passage, so please buckle in and follow along with me as I read it to you from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. This comes to us from the English Standard Version of the Bible. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Now this is a guy, this is is a stand-up guy here. You know, I mean his wife comes from a priestly family. He obviously comes from a priestly family. These These guys can mark this all the way back to the time of the days of the Exodus, which I find incredible. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But, and this is a big one, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. You know, (laughs) even as a follower of Jesus, and I've, I've thought this myself, but I've run into this a lot as a pastor, is that conversations I have with people is that there's so many out there that, I mean, we're all, we, all, we all struggle with our own brokenness, right? We all have our own issues. And, uh, you know, we're all working, and, and, and as, as, as the writer in Hebrews says, we're all working out our salvation, right? And we're, you know, we're seeking to become more and more like Jesus on a daily basis. But sometimes, you know, sometimes things happen. Sometimes really bad things happen, things that we can't explain, Things that don't have simple answers to them. 
And we sit there and we wrestle with them when we try to rationalize them, when we try to come up with reasons why they happen the way that they do. You know? Gosh, why did, you know? I had a very dear friend of mine. It's someone that, man, I loved immensely. Someone who prayed for me. She was a part of our first church plant in northwestern Wisconsin. One of the, probably, probably the most godly woman I've ever known. I mean, unreal. And one of these people that just, man, she was one that just her faith just dripped from her. You couldn't help but be around her and, 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 and you, feel, you felt better about yourself, but you felt better about your walk with Christ because of just the way this woman was. Well, I get a, I get a text two weeks ago, yesterday. Two weeks ago yesterday, I get a text from one of my other former church members in northwestern Wisconsin that tells me that this woman's 19-year-old son was killed in an automobile accident the night before. I mean, you send, it's, it's every parent's worst possible nightmare. You send your kid off, you think everything's good, you raise them up right, and something like this happens. She's been incredibly strong throughout this whole thing. It's been, she's been a blessing to a lot of people. But I have no doubt that there are people out there, and I've done this, once again, I've said I've done this myself. We attempt to rationalize why something like that happened. I have no doubt in my mind, and I pray that no one, I pray that no one said this to her, I have no doubt in my mind that there's people out there that, that feel that there is something that she did that brought that on. Or something that boy did that brought that on. People just can't seem to accept the fact that, you know what, we live in a broken, screwed up, messed up world that has fallen and things happen. Why? Because we live in a broken and fallen and screwed up, messed up world. That's why. And you know what, someday, someday, We'll have the chance to ask God why that happened. But you know what? When we get there and we, are, and we are prepared to hear that answer, you know what? It won't matter to us. You know why? Because we will be standing in the presence of Almighty God. That's why. I have no doubt in my mind that, that, that these people ask these very questions. Why is this happening to me, God? I'm devoted to you. I do everything you ask me to do. I followed the letter of the law. I am devout. Gosh, even the writer of the gospel thinks I did this. Why? Let me continue. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen to enter or chosen by lot, excuse me, to enter into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. This is a big deal. In a priest's life, if this happened to him once, it was a big deal. If it happened to him twice, it was a miracle. This was a big deal for Zechariah to be able to do this. And while he was doing this, the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Wow. And Zechariah was troubled. Man, I love the understatement here. He was troubled. Troubled. I would have just fallen and collapsed. You know, everywhere in the Bible you see this, whenever God shows up. Now, this is an angel of the Lord, but what we're going to find out in a minute is this is Gabriel. He stands in the presence of the Lord. And there's no doubt in my mind that when you stand in the presence of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of God comes off on you. Look Look at what happened with Moses. He spent a few days with the Lord, and I mean, he never really saw him. Because God wouldn't show himself to him. But because he was in his presence, when Moses came down off the mountain, he had a shine about him. He had a glow about him. And he scared the people. He had to turn, his, he had to turn around. That's how, that's how it is with God. I happen to believe that, that there are two things, two things that, that scare us to death. And that is absolute evil 
and absolute holiness. And I got news for you. When you're up against absolute evil, you can run to that which is absolutely holy to save you. When you run up against absolute holiness, you've got nowhere to go, man. Nowhere. That's where, this, this is, that's where Zechariah was. An old dude. Just st- and all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord shows up. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, and this is a cool thing about God, the angel said to him, do not be afraid. God always says that. He always sets to calm his children down, his people down, whenever he stands before them. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Man, could you imagine hearing this before one of your kids was born? It's like, wow. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He must have been a Wesleyan. And he m- will not be... Boy, that, that, let's, man, this is a tough room. Jeez, Raven, how do you do this, man? And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. There's some charismatic saying out there, I don't think so. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Probably not the smart thing to say at this moment. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, tells him, do you know who I am? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent here to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Here's the key part of this verse right here, friends, which will be fulfilled in their time. Not your time, not his time, in their time. In other words, in God's time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay at the temple. Yeah, I could imagine And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his his time of service was ended, he came, or excuse me, he went to his home. And after after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. and And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The main thing that I want us to see in this passage is that when God shows up, hear me, when God shows up, any and all things are possible. But, you had to know that was coming. But, It requires us to come to terms with some of the stuff about ourselves and how we think and how we do things. And then we have to commit to doing things that are more in line with how God designed them. See, God just doesn't show up and let us remain the way we are. There's four things that I want us to take away from this story that I think will help us renew this thing called hope, even in the midst of the mud and the mayhem that we call life. You ready? Write this down. To be renewed in hope, we must recognize our hopelessness. 
we must recognize our hopelessness. I'm a huge advocate of self-awareness. As a pastor, I've always told my folks that one thing I constantly pray for them, no matter who they are or no matter where they are in their their walk of faith, is self-awareness. In order for us to get to where we want to go, this is why this is a big deal, in order for us to get to where we want to go, we must first know where we currently are. That makes sense, right? Let's lay some groundwork. Hope is defined simply as the expectation of good. Okay? You tacking with me here? Hope is the expectation of good. Simple definition. Hopeless, therefore, would mean a lack of expectation of good. Hopelessness is a state of being that is lacking the expectation of good. One of my favorite sayings is... Hope springs eternal. Now, while most of the time I'm quite serious when I say it, I stand before you this day, and I'll admit that I am often also being sarcastic. Shocking, I know. I say it because hope is ubiquitous. It can be found just about anywhere. And I think largely because we know that without it, life is nearly impossible. However, in our desire to live, our, live lives of meaning, we have defined hope down. While it makes getting out of bed a little bit easier, and perhaps a little more meaningful, our unwillingness to see it for what it really is, is preventing us from laying hold of it in such a way as to transform us and how we live. Consider Zechariah. He was a devout and righteous man, as described by Luke. You would think that this was a guy who was full of hope in the possibilities of what God could do in any situation. Yet when confronted with the opportunity to hope for the one thing, the one thing that he and his wife wanted more than anything, and in the process, in the midst of this, here's some bonus stuff here, to be used by God to raise a man who would prepare the people for the coming Messiah, he just couldn't do it. Check out verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Let's talk talk about this for a moment. You see, Zechariah, well, let's put it this way. Tom's right. I'm, I'm, I'm getting old. I'm in my prime, mind you, but I am getting old. One of the things that, that getting old can do, do to and for you, and it's a two-edged sword. We talk about expectations, right? One of the things that, hopefully, part of wisdom is learning to manage your expectations. It's understanding how life really is and what it can do, and sometimes it's hard. You know? And the thing is this. What we often, we often do is, is that we've learned that uh, you know, someone who has their expectations in line, someone who seems to have their act together a little bit this way, we say, this guy has tempered, or this gal has tempered their expectations, tempered their expectations. Now, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and there's a lot of, they used to manufacture a lot of steel in Pittsburgh, and my dad was a steel worker, and tons of my uncles were steel workers, and my grandfather was a steel worker. And we, when I would go to family gatherings, that's all these guys talked about. But what they also talked about was the fact that what, what, happens, what happens when you temper steel? What happens when you temper something? What does it do? Makes it hard. Thank you. Makes it hard. What happens when we temper our expectations, therefore? 
It's hardening. When, you do, when something's hard, it tends to last a long time, but then it also becomes impenetrable. It becomes impervious to anything that's going on on the outside. And such is the case here. And I think this is what happened with, with Zechariah. Zechariah, man, I mean, he's a godly man. Everybody knows it. Luke said so. But he had tempered expectations. And his, he was, his mind and his heart, to a degree, had become so hard that when someone who had the power to change things came and spoke this truth to him, he couldn't hear it. It didn't make sense to him. He was like, well, what do you, I'm an old man. What are you talking about? Once again, tempered expectations. I'm an old man. I can't do this. Zechariah had become so accustomed to living with, 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 with a lack of real hope that when the time came to lay hold of it, he quite literally had to be drugged there, kicking and screaming. The fact that we are hopeless without the intervention of God into... Well, we are. We're hopeless without the intervention of God into our world, into our lives. But even then, in order for us to fully embrace it, requires something else. Write this down. To be renewed in hope, we must act in faith. One of the best practical definitions of faith, I believe, is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let me read it to you. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me read that again. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let's put it this way. Let me redefine this, and what I'm going to do is bring in the definition of hope and bring in a definition of faith and pull them together. You ready for this? Faith is the steadfast belief of the expectation of good things. Faith is the steadfast belief of the expectation of good things. In this context, in the steadfast belief in the good things God has promised, God has promised Zechariah a son who would become a key figure in his redemptive plan. At first, Zechariah balked at the very idea and I don't think for the reasons that we may at first think. Now, I talked about tempered expectations. Now, don't get me wrong. Honestly, it's a pretty incredible story to think that a, a couple in their 60s or maybe even in their 50s could conceive and bear a child. Seriously. It would be easy to think that Zechariah's problem was believing that God could do such a thing, Right? But I don't think that was his issue. I think it goes way deeper than that. You see, I believe that Zechariah believed completely that God could cause an old couple to have a kid. I think his lack of faith had to do with believing in God's willingness to do such a thing for him. I firmly believe that this is at the heart of our faith struggles. This, this lack of belief that God will work on our behalf. Not, not, only that, not only that, but that he will gladly work on our behalf. And we'll unpack that a little bit more in just a few minutes. Zechariah took the chance, not that he had a lot of choice, but he took the chance 
And after being admonished pretty sternly by the angel that maybe, maybe, just maybe, God was willing. So he goes home. And he and Elizabeth proceed to do what is required to have a child. Remember, John was not conceived of the Holy Spirit. John was conceived the old-fashioned way. We'll just leave it at that. Also remember that he was mute. So he couldn't explain to his wife all that had transpired at the temple. Zechariah exercised his faith one more time, and here's what happened. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. (laughs) My guess is she couldn't believe it either. She probably struggled with the same lack of belief in God's willingness to work on her behalf as her husband. Like I said, I think it's a broken human thing above all things else. But why is that? Why do we struggle with believing God's willingness to work directly on our behalf? I'm guilty of it. I think it goes to the idea of shame. Specifically, a false sense of shame. Write this down. To be renewed in hope, we must reject false shame. Let's talk about Elizabeth for a minute. A few moments ago, I had mentioned to you how the culture had, had, had brought this, I mean, women, especially in Jewish culture, understand this, they typically didn't know how to read and write. Now, I know that some of you, see, this, this is a smart crew here. I know that some of you, when I said a few minutes ago, well, maybe Zechariah couldn't, you know, he couldn't, he, couldn't, he couldn't say anything to Elizabeth, but maybe he could write something down, which would be great if she knew how to read. Chances are she didn't, because Jewish women weren't allowed to learn how to read. They, had, they weren't allowed to serve in court because their witness was said to be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Unreliable. Honestly, when I sit, stand up here and tell you that, that, that women, man, and I say this, I, I married one, raised two, and have three granddaughters. I have, I have a very high view of women, and I find this troubling, but it's true is that women back in the day, all the, all, 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 the only value they brought to the table was that they could bring children. And when I say children, I mean male children. And Elizabeth had none of that. And you see, we all know, at least I hope we do, that that is a lie straight from the pit of hell itself. That is false shame, friends. And I have no doubt in my mind that in this room that there are people that are struggling with a false sense of shame, that they believe that God put them in a position that they were or won't act on their behalf or won't do the things that, that or won't even ask, won't even ask because they have, you have this false sense of shame. You're in good company. It's happened to the best of us. Listen again to verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Elizabeth was ashamed that she couldn't do the one thing that the prevailing culture had drummed into her and every other woman's head regarding their worth, and herein lies the problem. She and her husband bought into the lie that a person's self-worth is defined by what they do. I can relate. Let me share real quick a personal story with you. 
I sensed a call into ministry probably around 1995. I was away at a conference with some friends of mine. I was at, it was a Gingersburg United Methodist Church in Dayton, Ohio, a place called the Change Conference. And I mean, I was hearing stuff from these guys that I'd never heard from anybody before. And I could sense God, you know, just tugging on my heart and calling me out and all this stuff. And I shared it with some of the dearest friends I had at the time. And they encouraged me. But you know what I thought to myself? Why would God ever use a man like me? Some of you know me. I've got a colored and a checkered past. I've struggled with drug addiction. I've struggled with all kinds of addiction. I, I wasn't always a man of integrity. Like so many people, I've cut corners. I can relate to, to David the King so much. And it seems that every time you learn something, something else creeps up, and I learned that the hard way too. I still do. I'm almost 60 years old, and I still struggle. And I looked at myself and I said, there's no way in the world that God could possibly use a man like me in service to him in that way. So I continued, and I tried to walk away from it, and I tried to push God away, and I said, God, I'll serve you in any way that I can. I will continue to seek you out, and I will continue to to be your man, and I will continue to love you with everything that I am. But there's no way in the world you can possibly use a guy like me in service to you. Not like that. I know me. And what happened was, is as my life went on, and I continued to try to walk away from this, God made me more and more miserable. And I mean, I was in sales and marketing at the time. And, and, and if I may say so, I was a very good salesman. I was good at what I did. But you know what? I hated every minute of it. And you know why? Because I wasn't doing the thing that God had designed me to do. And as long as I continued to try to walk away from that, as long as I tried to, as long as I tried to, 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 to reject the calling that God had placed on my life, he was just going to see to it that I was made more and more miserable. I had a friend of mine lean up and, to the seat one time, and I was sharing all this with him, and he leaned up and he said, you know what, you're going to continue to be miserable until you come to terms with the fact that God has called you to preach his word and mentor leaders. And then he immediately sat back because I probably would have taken a swing at him if I could. That's how upset I was, but I knew he was right. My guess is all of you can relate to this in some degree or another. But here's a fact. God doesn't define us by what we do. This is especially difficult for a man. Because you get into a conversation with a guy, if 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 you introduce two guys, just kind of step back and take a listen to what goes on. I will, I will bet next week's paycheck, and I'm not a gambling man, I will bet next week's paycheck that within 15 seconds, the que- this question will arise. So, what do you do? I guarantee it. Guys in particular, but human beings in general, and I see women doing this more and more as, they become more, as you become more involved in the marketplace, you, you, you allow yourselves to be defined by what you do, or don't do for that matter. God does not define us that way. And this is something that once I understood this and once I came to terms with this, it set me free. Listen, he defines us, he defines you by who you are. By his love for you. And your value emanates through his great grace towards you. I believe Elizabeth came to understand this. And she said as much in verse 25. Take a listen. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days 
when he looked on me to take away my reproach, in other words, my shame among people, she not only accepted, but seemed to embrace how God dealt with her. Listen to what she said. The Lord has done for me. She came to grips with the fact that God loved her in spite of her brokenness and was prepared to work in and through her as his redemptive plan began to unfold and it would forever change her. That, my friends, that is where hope begins. Write this down. To be renewed in hope, we must embrace grace. As we see in verse 25, Elizabeth embraced grace. Grace is the foundation of all that we are and all that we ever hope to be. It is God's undeserved and unmerited favor towards us that is the great destroyer of hopelessness. That's what the the first advent was all about. He came to set things right with us so that we may be a part of his eternal kingdom, one he came to establish on a starry night so long, long ago. Hopelessness ends, and hope, real hope, begins with grace. The Apostle Paul says as much in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that sin reigned in death. Let me stop there for just a minute. I want you to think about something. How many of us, how many of us believe that the law came to give us guide rails to keep us within? if, if, If all y'all were honest, every hand would be raised. That's not what it, the law was given to us to show us how screwed up we were. The law was given to us to show us that we had no chance to ever live up to it. It's a fool's game. And Paul says so much here, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, God just didn't mete out enough grace to meet the level of sin. He overwhelmed it for every drop For every drop of sin, he threw a 55-gallon drum of grace on it. That's what I'm saying. Grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace may also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our hope is in grace. Jesus came to restore hope, and hope begins with grace. My prayer for you, is that you reflect, or as you, I should say, as you reflect on your life over this this time of Advent, over the next little while, that you will come to grips with the reality that God wishes you to see yourself as He sees you. And that you will surrender yourself to His grace. And that through His grace, allow Him to transform you into the one that he meant you to be since before time itself began. Let's pray. God, these messages of grace are just so timeless. And we always need to hear them. Not just, gosh, not just at this time of the year. There's so much going on around us, so many things. This has been such a a difficult time for so many people in our nation for so much going on around us. 
terrible divisive elections and all kinds of things that we can't even begin to imagine. Like I said, wildfires and earthquakes and floods and good heavens. It would be so easy to lose hope if it weren't for you, if it weren't for what you did, and if it weren't for what you continue to do through the Holy Spirit in the lives of people who are committed to you, who reach out in your name and share the hope of the grace that you have offered this world free of charge. Lord, my deepest prayer is is that for each and every one of us, first off, to come to grips with that grace in our own lives. That we fully grasp the idea that there is nothing about us in and of itself that makes us right before you, that it is you and only you and what you've done. And that having come to grips with that and come to terms with that and embraced it, that we would take that same grace and take it into the marketplace, into the byways and highways of our lives, sharing it with others, with family, with friends, with people we know, people we do business with, so that they may see and that we may live and walk a life of grace, not only where we share it, but where we live in the midst of it. That, Lord, that is the hope that this world so desperately needs. And God, I pray that you would empower us that you would encourage us, and that you would give us the faith to live that way every single day. We thank you this day. We praise you, and we honor you, and we thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.